Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of February 3rd, 2020. On the show today, listener questions. And in our main segment, Jim tells us about the shortest-lived attractions in Disney theme park history. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks, are we really supposed to know how to do everything by our second rodeo? Because that's still a very low number of rodeos. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's going great. And uh, by the way, I don't know if you're a Doctor Who fan, the, the latest iteration. In fact, the, the very last episode that ran actually had a, this isn't our first rodeo joke. Did it really? One of the companion was trying to impress somebody. You know, this isn't our first rodeo. And the other one, the other companion leaned in and we, we've never been to a rodeo. <laughs> it, it, is our, it may be our first rodeo. <laughs> I mean, like literally it's our first rodeo, but metaphorically. <laughs> there we go. Jim, let's do a shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, WRS Jr., Techno Disney, and Haley H., and longtime subscribers, Bayona, Blue Moon 1070, and Kyle B. Jim, these folks are the wildlife psychologists at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge. When a giraffe gets stage fright before going out on the savanna, it's folks like Haley and Kyle who give the animals little pep talks like... Remember when you were in Kansas City playing Willie Loman and Salesman, dreaming of your big break? This is your break. This is the role you were born for, baby. And now again, just to stress here, these are the animal psychologists, not the psychiatrists, which, by the way, I, I don't know if you've been backstage and seen the couch they use for the giraffe. Very impressive. <laughs> that was a better joke. I should have gone with that. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. Jim, big news from last week. Disney closed the Hong Kong and Shanghai parks due to the coronavirus. Jim, there's obviously going to be an economic impact here. How is this going to affect the, the domestic parks? They're following the queue of the United States government. I don't know if you just saw today that, for example, United is limiting uh, the number of flights in and out of China. It's one of those situations where it's, it's clearly evolving. And okay. decisions haven't been made at the highest levels of our government. So from a theme park point of view, it's just sort of like, okay, business as usual until it's not business as usual. But we're a couple of days out from the quarterly earnings call, aren't we? Right. Going to be very interesting to hear what Iger has to say about this. Because, I mean, you have to acknowledge that it's the right call. Sure. Yeah, it totally makes sense. You don't want to get a large group of people congregating together in close quarters like that. And I think China had been limiting things like sporting events for the same reason, right? Oh, yeah. But this could not have come at a, a worse time. When you factor in the Lunar New Year and how, how many people travel to get back to family or celebrations or that sort of thing, right. or just ahead of, you know, when they begin sort of, you know, closing the gates and that sort of thing, there were a number of large corporate parties and that sort of thing for the Lunar New Year. So it's an evolving situation and I'm sure there will be a financial impact, but I think at this point, it's just everybody's just wants to sort of stress, let's do the right thing. People's health is, is more important than profit. Do you think that the closure of the Asian parks will lead to cutbacks in like staff or capacity or anything like that in domestic parks to sort of balance things off? <sighs> There's gotta be a plan in place, right? There's gotta be a contingency somewhere. Yeah. This thing goes on for three months in China. Well, there you go. Okay. That's what it is. Then it's going to come down to how, how long? I'm sure there's a certain time threshold where it's like, okay, we have to do something. 
You know, it's kind of interesting, the Imagineering story uh, documentary that Leslie Iwerks did, one of the more moving moments out of this thing was they talked about the earthquake and how the park had to close for a number of weeks. And the interesting thing is in the United States, they will announce things are back to normal. We can reopen businesses. People can fly again. Where in Japan, nobody does that. So one of the, the sort of the canaries in the coal mine that things were okay again, finally, was when Tokyo Disneyland opened. And they ran this amazing footage of the from the very first day that the parks reopened after the earthquake. And it was to watch all these Japanese people in tears who were running up to the people who were playing the characters in the park and thanking them. That's nice. I'm allowed to smile because you guys reopened. So that means things were okay again. So kind of hope that we'll be getting that footage of that very same thing going on in Hong Kong and Shanghai before too long. All right. Fantastic. Good to hear. Mm -hmm. Jim, let's do some, uh, some listener questions. This one's from our childhood friend, Mike. It's a question about Fast Pass at Rise of the Resistance. Mike writes, I love the podcast. We're headed to uh, Walt Disney World in mid-April to check out the new Star Wars land. I know Disney announced they'll have Fast Pass available for Smuggler's Run, but do you know if they'll offer Fast Passes for Rise of the Resistance by then? By mid-April, my guess is no, right? So, Jim, the big reason why they're not offering Fast Pass at Rise of the Resistance is because the ride isn't yet operating at full capacity and isn't hasn't been, hasn't demonstrated its reliability over the long haul, right? Yeah, though, did you see that other survey that was bubbling up about they were literally asking people about what would you prefer? I actually got that survey weeks ago. Did you yeah. really? Okay, yeah, can, got, can got you it, explain yeah. a little bit about it? One of the questions that Disney sent out to guests at Hollywood Studios, going back again, at least as far as a month, was around your preference for how you access a ride like Rise of the Resistance. The question was, if I remember correctly, something like, did you prefer boarding groups, fast pass, or just a traditional standby line? Um, or then some combination of like standby and fast pass and so on. So it asked like, do you want boarding group only, fast pass only, fast pass and standby, or standby only, something like that. Uh, but I, yeah, I thought I mentioned this on the, on the show, but I got one like a month ago on mm -hmm. it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned about that question because, uh, frankly, the general public is, uh, doesn't know enough about queuing theory to be deciding these sorts of things. You know, like, I know you might like boarding groups, but uh, yeah, I know. The problem is folks are going home telling the story of, A, Rise of the Resistance is this absolutely amazing attraction. You, you got to ride it. But. We had to get up at six. We had to be in the park at seven. We got a boarding group and we didn't get to ride it till four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And it's just. Yeah. And that's actually Mike's, the second part of Mike's question. It, does a whole ride party need to get to the park by 7 a.m. to get a boarding pass or can I do it for my family? And, and so to answer that part of the question, no, Mike, everyone's got to be there in the park as well. And then his third question is, obviously, if I get a boarding pass that early, can I leave the park and come back later to ride? I'm assuming that Mike wants to nap. Go back, go back and finish his eight hours of sleep. I was on the phone just past this past week with a friend who's very well tied in with Imagineering, and they lived there in Orange County. They went to the park. They got a, a boarding group. It was fairly late in the day, and they lived close enough to the park that they were able to go home and keep an eye on their boarding group while they were doing laundry and you know, doing the dishes. And nice. said, oh, our boarding group is just you – know, and they got in the car and drove over and experienced the attraction. So, oh, that's fantastic. 
So yeah, you can go back to your hotel. Hell, you can house clean. <laughs> go back, go back home, and then come back. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right, Jim, our uh, good buddy Kyle writes in with this. I was curious if you'd heard anything about Disney getting rid of the character wraps on the Skyliner. Almost every time I've ridden it, I've seen families request and wait for one without a wrap. People like the views without it, as they feel the wrap almost makes it difficult to see out. Have you heard anything? And I think Jim, we talked about this from our first rides on the Skyliner. There are two decorations on the outside of the Skyliner. One is just the paint that you mm -hmm. you see going around. So the reds, the yellows, the greens of the Skyliner. The other one has this screen wrap around it where you see the characters, you know, almost like the monorail is wrapped. And, and it looks great from the outside. The problem is on the inside, it really restricts the view of what you see because it makes everything darker. And it's, it's like you're looking through a really thick screen door. Yep. And I, I agree with Kyle. It's it's not as good an experience as, as an unwrapped Skyliner. Yes, this is an operation issue. On the other hand, if you remember the retail program <laughs> that, that was created right. along with the Skyliner, where you can buy certain miniature versions of a Skyline cab with Mickey and Minnie or the Hitchhiking Ghost or that sort of thing, there were certain promises made to certain folks in other divisions of the company about if you, you make us T-shirts, if you make us Christmas ornaments, and, you know, we will make those available to the tens of millions of people who ride this thing every year. And that's going to have to run its course. Oh, all right. They are already sort of kicking the tires of in regard to expansion. And I guess one of the things that's, that's on the table is, well, do we continue this character art program or with the newer lines, do we not do this? Because they were trying to sell a fun experience and they thought you're writing with your favorite characters and not anticipating that people want the views. Well, that's it. Exactly. And in fact, yeah. remember that, that the conceit was that this was going to be Disney's version of the cable cars from San Francisco, you know, the sort yeah. of thing that you had to ride over the course of your vacation. And it's just like the whole notion of, oh, they're really not interested in writing to the characters. They want to see the views. So it's like, okay, as we order new cars, as we bring older cars off the line, we'll keep that in mind. So this problem will solve itself sadly in three to five years. But if you want the character-free car, Casmers seem to be very accommodating. Right. Wish I had better news there for Kyle, but okay. So let me let me follow up on this question. Then you mentioned that the views are one of the things that people like about the Skyliner, and I agree. Mm -hmm. Do you think then, as they're planning out new routes? they'll take into consideration the things that you're going to see along the way. Let's say that they wanted to expand the Skyliner to go west of Hollywood Studios, which would mm -hmm. be Coronado Springs, the All-Star Resorts, mm -hmm. uh, Animal Kingdom, Park and Lodge, right? Mm -hmm. If they did that, they've got a couple of choices. One choice is there's relatively wide swaths of trees and forest mm -hmm. that they could pass through to go directly from the studios to the Animal Kingdom Lodge. And you would only go over like the parking lot of Animal Kingdom, which I think there's probably be a stop. But do you think that they would route that line through Coronado Springs just so you could fly over Coronado Springs? Because the view is better? Actually, there's two issues here. One, of course, is huh. given what happened during the first week or so of operation when the line went down, right. the shorter the line the easier it is to deal with that sort of thing. So yes, there was always a plan 
to stop at the Coronado. In fact, it's at the edge of the Coronado parking lot in such a way that they would then build a bridge similar to the ones they have at Disney Springs that would allow guests to get access to Blizzard Beach and the miniature golf course. And then from there, they would continue on to Animal Kingdom Lodge and Kidani Village. And they would go through the parking lot of Animal Kingdom, I guess? Would that be your... Well, you know, there's there's actually... you You can't go directly from Coronado Springs to Animal Kingdom Lodge because you would actually pass over Discovery Island. Well, actually, the the waste treatment plant for for (laughs) Walt Disney World is, is, you know, in fact, that's that's always one of the more interesting things of you had all of this land to to build the Coronado and you built it there, you know, and so every so often when the wind shifts, you know, the people staying at the Coronado get that extra Disney sensory experience. So, yeah, they don't necessarily want that view. (laughs) Right. Okay. All right. So, yes, they they would sort of skirt around the park, so to speak. But again, the idea is they want folks to have a wonderful view of Blizzard Beach. They're proud of, obviously, their their new tower at the Coronado. But yeah, at the same time, you you don't want people dangling out over the savannah. (laughs) (laughs) I I was thinking of, you know how they do the uh, bird program at uh, Discovery Island? On Discovery Island, a couple times a day, you know, if oh, they, yeah, they could yeah. release the birds, uh, the macaws, <laughs> as the sky, as a skyliner gondola is going right above it, you could uh, you could sort of reach out and grab the birds, but probably oh. not a good idea. Or, or when it breaks down, you could use the birds as a messenger system. It's like we've gone, <laughs> we've we've all drunk the one bottle of water. What what else do we do up here? <laughs> all right, Jim. Uh, next listener question is actually a survey from that our friend. Aaron from our West Coast crew got, and uh, this was after a visit to Disney California Adventure, had a really interesting question I wanted to get your take on, Jim. The question was this. Would you say that Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout was too scary, about the right amount of scary, or not scary enough? Why why is Disney asking that question, Jim? And that's the only – I followed up with Aaron. That was the only thrill ride that he visited for which that question was asked. We have Cosmic Rewind, which is being finaled, so to speak. Tracks in place and that sort of thing. But they are sort of locking in the boards because they're going to have to start shooting with the live action members of the cast to do the the footage and the, the inserts and all that. And there is the special After Dark edition of Mission Breaker that yep. they do at California Adventure over Halloween time. And that one is deliberately, they sort of dialed up the scares. They made it that much edgier. And they're trying to sort of zero out ahead of locking Cosmic Rewind. It's like, what do people actually expect from a Guardians of the Galaxy attraction? Because this is for Epcot. This is the more educational park, more family-friendly and it's like, are people okay with what we've done with Mission Breakout? And if they are, then we can go with that level of scare for Cosmic Rewind. Or if we get you know significant response of not scary enough, maybe we can look at what we did with the After Hours Halloween edition. So oh. kind of fine-tuning out ahead of the big marquee attraction we're going to get for Future World. And geez, we are, what, 15 months now? Out? Yep. Yeah, I thought it was going to be for uh, uh, the new Guardians ride too at Epcot. That's where I was. That, that was my suspicion, but it's good to hear that it's confirmed. Yep. All right, Jim. Speaking of surveys, our sister from another, Mister Tanya, sent in screen caps of a Disney survey she got. And Jim, I've never seen these questions before, so I wanted to get your take on them. 
Mm-hmm. So there are, uh, there are three sets of questions. The first one was, among your immediate traveling party, how many different rooms or suites did you use? And it says here, you know, count multiple rooms, suites or villas as one hotel room. Why do they want to know how many rooms you had? The 50th anniversary is looming. They're trying to get a sense of when it comes to a Walt Disney World vacation today and the fact that so many families are like, we're going to Disney. Do you want to come to Disney with us? (laughs) But dear God, we're not staying in the same room. (laughs) You can look at when a family links its magic bands or that sort of thing. You get a sense of what the group is, but you don't necessarily have that information at the hotel end. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay, so if you're a traveling party of six. Yep. You want to know whether everybody stayed in the same hotel. And they wouldn't necessarily know that from magic bands, mm-hmm. would they? I was wondering if they were going to possibly use that for marketing to people who they know would book more than one hotel room. Like, for example, when Laurel and I travel with Hannah and her her friend, mm-hmm. Natalie, who goes on all, all the trips with us, ever since they were old enough to, to be on their own, we put them in their own hotel room. Because mm-hmm. they're so sloppy, right? They're, the kids, you know how messy kids are. You just, I don't want to see that. And they, okay. you know, they sleep until noon and mm-hmm. we, you know, I don't want to, I don't want them to bother me when they're up all night and I don't want to bother them when I'm up, you know, at five o'clock in the morning. So two separate hotel rooms are the way to go there. You think that Disney would, would do special offers to people who they know would be traveling and getting multiple hotel rooms? I'll bet that's, that's going to be. Oh yeah. Yeah. With the 50th looming. And so many families thinking, well, this is the year. We have to do it. Right, yeah. And just getting a sense of, okay, how big a market segment is that? And how do we plan for that? So just sort of gathering info and chugging away at it. These next two questions were super interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And again, I've never seen this before. The first question is, you indicated that you visited each of the two parks below on a specific day that Tanya was on her trip. Please indicate the order in which you visited these parks in that day. So Magic Kingdom and Disney Springs were the two that, that Tonya visited on a specific day. And she had to rate them, you know, first and second, the one that she did first and second. The follow-up question was all around your transportation between those destinations. So the, so she indicated that she was at the Magic Kingdom first. The first question was, how did you get to the Magic Kingdom? Was it monorail from a Disney resort? Was it a Disney bus? Was it a non-Disney bus to the TTC? a watercraft or boat, a minivan, a personal or rental car to the TTC, a taxi, a non-Disney ride share, or did you get dropped off by friends? And then there's another follow-up. When she left the Magic Kingdom and went to the Disney Springs, the exact same question, how did you do that? So Jim, why do they want to know your transportation mode to and from intra-Disney World destinations? If you're allotting your transportation budget going forward and and face it. All right. So let let me preface this because I I think I know where you're going here. Mm -hmm. They already know how many people are riding each of these things, Mm -hmm. right? They already know how many people are on the monorail. They already know how many people are on the buses, right? They can get all that information, right? They can count how many people are on the boats. Why do they want to know in a survey? We're going from the tools you use to get around the resort to what are your actual preferences when it comes to how you, you get around the resort? We have an almost ridiculously aged monorail fleet, coupled mm-hmm. with the fact that 
If you think about the amount of money that they've spent just over the past five years updating the bus system, going to, you know, those, those how many of those giant extendo buses are now on property and how sure. when they brought those in, think about all the work they had to do at the bus pickup and drop off point at the Magic Kingdom to accommodate, you know, these far larger buses and that. You sort mentioned of thing. that, Jim, there is still a ton of work going on in that area and it's got to be for something. I don't know what it is. See what you can find out. Okay. I will I will nose around. But this is a company that clearly has spent a good chunk of change on the Skyliner. But again, that's the San Francisco trolley car. That's the thing right. you have to ride because it's part of your vacation. On the other hand, it's, you know, it's, people still think of Walt Disney World as, ooh, that's the place I get to ride the monorail. So what's your preference? And then to be able to take that info and to bring it to the board of directors at Disney, or particularly with your parks and resort, and say, this is what they want. Maybe it's time we actually put a little money back into that system, brought it up to date. Right. I think, by the way, the transportation group has been doing just a bang-up job over at uh, Disney World for, for the last couple of years. Everything mm -hmm. from the bus service to the Skyliner, fantastic ideas. But Jim, I think the re my thought when I saw this question was that they were trying to attach transportation use to other demographic information. So I said, you know, at the beginning of the oh. question, I was like, you know, Disney can count how many people are mm -hmm. getting on the monorail or how many people are getting on the ferry to go to the Magic Kingdom, but they don't know the incomes. Ooh, that's good. That's of good. Of those people, right? And when you look at this list and see non-Disney rideshare, Uber or Lyft, exactly. for that matter. that's where I was going, Or right? Disney <laughs> minivan, you know, the right. whole notion yeah. that for a whole group of folks who Uber everywhere in the real world, the fact that that's what their muscle memory is. I want to get to some place on Disney property. I Uber, I Lyft. That is interesting. That's what I thought. I, the, my thought was that they were trying to figure out what transportation method is most used by which income groups so that they could then market that transportation option to whatever group that they were targeting. I could be wrong, but no, if I was- No, you know, no, no, I, I love that thinking. Every time I see a Disney question, I'm, I'm always like, what's the money angle on this one? <laughs> like, what are they, how are they going to use this information to sell you more stuff? You and I have seen <laughs> enough surveys at this point. Oh, the question always when you look at a survey is, why? Why are you yeah, asking? Why are they asking this question? And then, yeah. yeah. So the other question that Tonya got that I'd never seen before was this. Uh, so she had mentioned that she had made some number of previous trips to Walt Disney World. And so they asked the specific question of the N trips that you'd made to Walt Disney World prior to your most recent one, in what year did the five most recent trips take place? So the first one was like year of trip prior to your most recent trip, select a year. And then the trip before that, what year was it? Then the trip before that and so on, all the way down for the last five trips that Tanya had taken. And then... The follow-up question on that was, how many times have you ever visited or experienced each of the following things? Adventures by Disney Tour, Shanghai Disney, Tokyo Disney, Disneyland, a non-Disney multi-day cruise vacation, Disneyland Paris, and so on. If you combine those two questions, they're trying to figure out how often you're willing to do a Disney vacation and then where. Yeah. And if we look at the previous question, she actually falls into the pattern that Disney's own research, you know, it's what the, she'd previously been to 
Disney World in 2019 and the year before that or the trip before that it was 2016. So again, that you know that three and three then and 2013 a half before that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just it's one of these things where the math holds out. Yeah. for the fact that we get them back every three and a half years. And so, you know, the whole notion of that's how we should continue to build a major attraction, kind of debuting it in each of the parks within that window. Kind of refreshes on hotels and the things like Disney Springs and that thereabouts. But what else have you sampled? Have you, you been to Disneyland? And the notion of a non-Disney multi-day cruise vacation. Right. Well, so, the, so what they're trying to figure out is like of the high ticket vacations, mm-hmm. high dollar vacations that you've taken, let's say you've let's say that you say that you've done six non-Disney multi-cruise vacations, you've done, you know, trips to Europe and then you've done the Disney stuff. They're what they're going to do is they're going to take the total number of those high dollar vacations that you had divided mm-hmm. by the number of Disney divide the number of Disney things by that, right? So if you said I've taken 20 high dollar trips, and of those 25 of them have been Disney. Disney's going to look at that and say, we're only capturing 25% of the high spend vacation market here. We could do way better than that, right? No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Anyway, so, uh, thanks to Tonya for uh, sending that in. Again, never seen those questions before. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. Jim, we're going to uh, close out this segment with a uh, shout out to our, we'll give a kidney to him friend, Steve, <laughs> who realized a lifelong dream yesterday at Disney's Hollywood Studios. And Steve writes in and says, I've been looking forward to February 2nd, 2020, since the first time I went to the sci-fi drive-in back in the early 1990s. And Steve sent in an image from a movie clip ad that plays at sci-fi. And Jim, I think you've, we've all seen this clip. It's uh, one of those little ads that goes between the, uh, the movie trailers. And in this one, it's a cartoon of somebody going from the earth, uh, getting on a rocket ship and going to Mars. And there's a gentleman holding out in his hand towards the screen, a ticket to board the trip to Mars. And it says, good for one, one round trip to Mars. Blast off February 2nd, 2020 at 1 p.m. Non-transferable. <laughs> and Steve, to his credit, actually went to the sci-fi drive-in, uh, dine-in, and, and was sitting there at one o'clock when it happened. He said he'd been looking forward to it since he was a kid in the 90s. So 20 some years. <laughs> wow, that's cool. That's fantastic. Uh, congratulations to you, Stephen. Thanks for sending that uh, in. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When Jim comes back, we're going to talk about the shortest lived attractions in Walt Disney theme park history. There are, I would say, classic attractions that have been around for a very long time. The Jungle Cruise in Disneyland. It's been around since 55. Right? Mm-hmm. Haunted Mansion. Been around since the late, late 60s. These are attractions that have endured for generations because they're classics and they appeal to a wide range of people. And they're part of our collective conscious now. And then, Jim, there are things that have the lifespan of a fruit fly. <laughs> the shelf life of a sesame bagel, as someone once said. <laughs> oh, Let's, let's talk about those, Jim, because okay. they might be more interesting in, in the short term anyway. All right. So we had to pick for mm-hmm. this show the shortest lived attractions at Disney theme parks. And obviously, there's a bunch of different criteria we could use uh, for this. What, uh, what are some of the ground rules that you used? Let's be clear here. We are not talking about shows that were deliberately designed for short runs. There are attractions that were short-lived. 
because they had mechanical or design issues, not necessarily because they weren't popular with guests. Right. We had, for example, the Tomorrowland boats, the, the, the Phantom boats. In Disneyland. Oh, it was an opening day attraction. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. The way Bob Gurr explained it to me, though, that they looked great, but the problem was the way they were designed didn't allow for proper airflow over the engines. And so they would either overheat or stall out. And then some poor Disney cast member and waiters would have to, you know, wander out to the lagoon and drag you back to shore. <laughs> that one only runs for, for 13 months before they shut it down. And they actually put up a sign uh, that said opening on June 2nd, 1956, that uh, they were going to bring a replacement attraction. And that was the Florida Everglades Airboat Oof. during a day when the park was, was traditionally closed in the spring. Uh, Mondays and Tuesdays uh, during the slow season, they fired up the airboat to sort of, okay, let's see what this is going to, you know, be like for an experience. And there were people as far away as Frontierland, like, what is that noise? And that's as far as the test went. It was like, it was so loud, it overwhelmed everything else in the park. Right. On the other hand, we have attractions like the Rocket Rods. That opened uh, May 22nd, 1998. And then suddenly closed on July 6, 1998, due to operational mechanical issues. And it then stayed closed, Len, for three months. So all you folks complaining about Rise of the Resistance, hey, remember Rocket Rods? It finally reopened that fall and then suddenly closed October 25, 2000. Disney announced at that point uh, that it would re be reopening after significant work in spring of 2001. Uh, but by April... 28th of 2001, both the Los Angeles Times and the Orange County Register were reporting that the Rocket Rods would never reopen at Disneyland. Never. Never. Because the budget for Tomorrowland 1998 had been significantly cut, they weren't able to bank the track. And remember, again, the people mover used to move along its mile plus track at a very leisurely pace. It took 16 minutes from when it was dispatched to when it got back. The rocket rod cars did that entire route in three minutes, Len. And wow. what ended up happening was that the people who were track just wasn't designed for this. And what they were finding is that because the track wasn't banked, the supports were basically being shaken out of position. And, you know, the fear was that someday somebody, a rocket rod was going to come around the track and basically take the track down. So it closed, never reopened, and that track has been standing in place ever since. And then, you know, there's things like Luigi's Flying Tires, a uh, soft open spring of 2012, officially opened to the public in uh, June 15th of, of that same year, and then closes 30 months later, uh, February of 2015. And did you ever get to experience that when it was, was running, Len? Or? Yes, once. Okay. And I, I, wouldn't, I wasn't going to wait for it after that. Luigi's Flying Tires gets replaced by Luigi's Rollicking Roadsters in May of 2016. Some shows are short-lived because they occupy real estate that suddenly becomes very, very valuable. The Viewliner for Disneyland, billed as the world's fastest miniature train, opens in June of 57. It closes in September of 58, largely because where it's it's been built is they need this land for Matterhorn Mountain. They need it for the lagoon, for the subs. And even though people to this day talk about how much they enjoyed riding on the thing, it only runs for 15 months. I don't know if I've seen this attraction. 
It's a train, yeah, but it, it, it's, it's, you know, if you, you've seen the, the sleek trains from the 1950s, this is it in miniature. And Walt used to love to run this thing around the park. But again, in the end, it was more valuable to get the Matterhorn and, and the subs going. So he shut it down. How is it different than the, than the railroad? If you, you call up images of Disneyland Viewliner, you'll immediately see how different it is from the steam train that went around the outside oh, of the it park. looks vastly different but i mean in terms of the route was it did it go somewhere different than no nope, it was a separate were, track from yep, the, the se- separate track there, there was this one piece of the the layout that would run parallel to the steam train and in fact they tried to time it in such a way that i think it's every four and five times that and again they they had two different view liners they that they were dispatching at different times that okay. but for every fourth or fifth train they launched they would run in tandem with the steam train and that it's just this wonderful series of photographs that you know people would stand there you know for the better part of an hour waiting for that moment where they'd sync up and you could get the past and the future moving in parallel it was pretty cool Nice. Walt had things he loved that he knew. In the end, it's like, okay, that didn't work. I mean, the, the Mickey Mouse Club Circus. Oh, we've talked about this, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Walt spared no expense. $350,000 to mount, uh, two 70-minute long productions each day. Only runs for uh, from November of 55 through the, the first week of January of 56, and Operate a loss. And speaking of things that never quite worked out the way Disney wanted, uh, Lucky the Dinosaur. Oh, I've, I saw Lucky in the Animal Kingdom. Did you really? Did yep. you, you saw him in operation out in the park because this is... Yep, several times. You're luckier than most, Len, because this thing debuted August of uh, 2003 at the Los Angeles Natural History Museum, showed up at DCA a couple of days later, uh, August uh, 20th, 2003. He was very impressive when he worked properly, which was a lot rarer than W.I. liked. Eventually popped up at Disney's Animal Kingdom for the, again, this must have been where you saw him, Mm -hmm. July through August of 2005, was shipped to September of that year over to Hong Kong. And then after that, if you booked the Adventures by Disney Los Angeles package, which included Mm -hmm. a tour of Imagineering, if you were the right group at the right time, they'd fire up Lucky for you. Oh, okay. Is it still around? I mean, it was... it was a Leslie Iwerks documentary. At one point, I think, they shot Joe Rohde walking around uh, Imagineering. And at, at one point, in the background, you can actually see Lucky wrapped up in plastic, sort of placed against a wall. Oh, okay. So still exists. Still exists, just not out, you know, entertaining the public. And then... We have shows that we thought were short-lived, which weren't necessarily as short-lived as we thought. I mean, for example, Habit Heroes. Habit Heroes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Intervention. Our, our friend uh, Chris Eliopoulos, I believe, did some of the artwork for this. Did he really? Wow. Yeah, he did, yeah. Okay. This was the show that was sponsored by Florida Blue Cross. It originally soft opens in February of 2012. And Disney got this sort of tsunami of bad press because there was at least one villain in this thing that was very obese. And Disney started to get hammered on to the effect of your fat shaming. Fat shaming, that's right. I was trying to figure out what it was. I couldn't yeah. remember. So yeah. they shut down the, the show. They significantly retool. Finally reopens again in January of 2013. 
and then proceeds to run for three years, Len. Did it really run for that long? Yeah. Didn't close till January 17th, 2016. Now, mind you, there was that 18-month, or excuse me, 11-month-long retooling. The, The version of the show that came out on the other side was relatively toothless. Folks who saw the the original were kind of like, wow, you know, it has kind of a, a fun Marvel superhero feel to it. In fact, uh, Ming-Na Wen was, you know, kind of the voice in the face of it. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. And on the other hand, there's shows like Sinbad Seven Voyages. This was an opening day attraction at Tokyo Disney Seas, and it operated for five years. And then... Disney made this very interesting decision. They had what arguably was that theme park's Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, they had the boat ride in front of all of these amazing animatronic figures and and truly beautiful dimensional sets and all that. But they were like, you know, it's just not connecting with the public for some reason. And we can't figure it out. And eventually they figured out, like, well, duh. Every classic Disney theme park attraction has a song. So uh, they, they actually hired Alan Menken, who wrote The Compass of Your Heart, which, which by the way, if you, you haven't heard, then is a complete earworm. It's just, it's one is of these really? things. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that, and it, it transforms. You want, you want catchy kids? I'll give you catchy. <laughs> <laughs> and the attraction with this new theme song reopens in March of 2007 and finally becomes the hit that Disney had wanted all along. But it's worth it just to go on YouTube and watch the original Sinbad Seven Voyages and then queue up uh, Sinbad's Storybook Voyages. That's what the, the retooled repert, you know, version of the attraction. And just some of, the, some of the changes are huge. Some of them are subtle. You know, one of the other things they did in addition to the compass of your heart is they gave Sinbad a cute little tiger cub companion who pops up all over the attraction. And that, you know, uh, the it's Japanese- It's not a cub, Jim. It's called the child. I believe. <laughs> oh, my mistake. There we go. And then we have our, our attractions that are short-lived because they're a bad fit for a particular theme park. And I wonder how many of our listeners actually ever got to see the Goosebumps Horrorland Fright Show and Funhouse. Didn't even hear. What what park was it in? I don't even it know what It was in is. Disney's Hollywood Studios. It was- what? Yep. I'm Googling half this stuff as you're bringing it up, Jim, because okay. I don't remember it. <laughs> okay. Uh, it was located on the streets of America. Ran from October of 1997 through November of 1998, obviously based on the R.L. Stein books. And it was just one of these things where on paper, it's like kids love these things. And this is a park that really needs more kids stuff. So let's put it in. And, you know, you could get your picture taken with, uh, you know, Slappy, the, the terrifying ventriloquist doll. One of these things where on paper, it was like, ooh, that should work, and it clearly didn't, and within 13 months' time, it's gone. Wow. There are times when an attraction is short-lived because it's really not the way the guests wanted to experience a particular franchise or IP, which brings us to The Legend of Jack Sparrow. Okay, I did see this. I didn't think this was that bad. If you're, you're somebody like you and I, you know, when we went to go see The Legend of Jack Sparrow, you know, it was hard not to be impressed by... The use of uh, the musion appearance of uh, literally Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow. Right. The effects were the effects were yeah. You saw you and I saw this together. Yeah, and of the use of projection technology was stunning. But it was Jack Sparrow. It was pirates skewed more toward a kiddie attraction, 
mean, for example, what you had to what frighten away like skeletons by stomping your feet or right? It was uh, it was Jack uh, Jack Sparrow meets Dora the Explorer. I think that's yeah. What we, we yeah. Now I remember what was bad about it. Yeah, yeah, okay. and All that right. was the thing. It just it it it, it had All right. wonderful technical uh, aspects, but it was just and it great production values, but it was just the wrong way to present this IP. But plus, let's be honest here that this is opening December of two thousand twelve. On Stranger Tides, opens in theaters of May of 2011, and then there was a six-year gap before we get the next Pirates movie, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and right. it was just poor timing and the wrong use of the IP. I mean, it's kind of similar to what happened with uh, Journey into the Jungle Book. Uh, this was, did you remember this in the, the it's, it's. In the old outdoor version of the theater that Finding Nemo, the musical, was in, it was the very first stage production for this park. No, I don't remember it. It's the 1967 animated version of Disney, but with live actors on stage playing Baloo and King Louie and, and the like. But what was different about this show is that in kind of a Cirque du Soleil thing, what they had done is they had embedded a trampoline in uh, the center of the stage. So you had characters, you know, sort of the way they made them cartoonish is they would, you know, bounce onto to the stage or they do elaborate, you know, acrobatic routines and that sort of thing. And and then, you know, there's, there's just, again, I hate to beat up on Animal Kingdom, but, you know, sometimes there's an attraction that's short-lived because it really doesn't serve a purpose. I mean, do you remember the Discovery River boats? Oh, yeah, actually, there was right. It was before my time with the unofficial guide, and mm-hmm. from the time I got the unofficial guide and to the time I got to the park, it had already stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, basically a boat that took you around the Discovery Island portion of the park. So you got on the Harambe side could take a boat halfway around and it, it sort of took you, it stopped just before the bridge that you walk over as you enter the Discovery Island village area. And then you could take the, the you know, other people who are waiting in line uh, could take the boat. And again, it would then move from under the bridge and continue around to Harambe uh, boat station. But it was this six or seven minute long boat ride. At and least that was it. <laughs> That's all it did. They tried... I mean, for example, if you made the Harambe to the the village side just before the bridge, you did over by Dinoland USA get to see a animatronic of the Eldara uh, from the, the Disney's dinosaur from 99, mm-hmm. sort of down by the waterfront. If, on the other hand, you took the under the bridge over to Harambe side, you passed what was going to be the construction site of Beastly Kingdom. And there was that sort of gout of fire that came out of a cave that was supposed to suggest that this is where this fire-breathing dragon lived. But I think you and I have talked in the past about how the stuff that they used to decorate the outside of the cave uh, to designate that their fire-breathing dragon lives here. And there was all of this melted armor and armor, you know, that had been sort of run through with lances and decorated outside of the cave was, it only made it for the cast member previews. Everyone decided, wow, that's too gruesome and dark, and they pulled it down. But it's a boat ride with nothing to look at. And they kept bringing it back. It was, I think the last iteration for the final summer, they changed it to the Radio Disney Cruise. And you basically rode on the boat listening to this 
loop tape that was advertising Radio Disney. And what they did is they had a cast member who had like a Tupperware container with like, this is a horned toad. Would you like to touch the hand horned toad? It's like, no, I'm good. Don't need to be on a boat for that. Yeah. So anyway, so that closes uh, August 21st, 1999. So in operation for just 16 months. And then finally, Len, we get to the attraction that was short-lived because it was just bad. And that is, of course, the infamous Superstar Limo, which opened at Disney's California Adventure on January 11, 2001, uh, along with the rest of the park, and closed for good February 2021. Or, excuse me, uh, uh, 2002. In operation for a total of 13? Hmm? Yeah, 13 months. 13, 13 months, months, barely. When the park was first announced in July of 1996, what Superstar Limo was supposed to be was, you know, it was supposed to be a funny thrill ride. In fact, if you go to look at concept art for California Adventure, you know, the, the earliest concept art for this park, you can see in the lower left section of the Hollywoodland section of that park, you can see what appears to be a miniature version of the theme building from LAX. But the idea was that you had just arrived in LA and mm -hmm. you're shown a video of Michael Eisner to the effect of, you know, hi, we're, we're gonna offer you a, a million dollar contract to be a movie star, but you need to make it to this Hollywood premiere. You've got 15 minutes to make it to the, the heart of LA. And so you you hop on a, a limousine, which is a roller coaster, and then you roll past all of these uh, Hollywood icons like Tale of the Pup and, you know, the, the Capitol Records building. and. But in the end, uh, and you're being chased by the paparazzi the entire time. And, you know, the sad part of it is you get there and it's Mr. is just like, oh, you were so close, but you missed by a minute. No million dollar contract for you. <laughs> so this is the concept. And it, it's, you know, this is going forward and it's going to give the park a thrill ride and some, you know, but a different sort of thrill ride than what everybody else in Southern California is doing. But then, of course, August 31st, 1997, Princess Diana is killed in a car crash, which supposedly yeah, is caused yeah, yeah. being chased by paparazzi. And suddenly this isn't a funny idea anymore. And right. they dumbed down the idea, but they dumbed down for California. But yet anybody who's been on Rock and Roller Coaster starring Aerosmith, that opens in, in uh, July 26, 1999. Right. It's the same thing, yeah. It's the same well, thing. Well, I mean, it's not the same thing. It's the same idea, but yeah. This yeah. Is a completely different, right? Yeah. But the idea lived on. They just stripped out the paparazzi element and, you know, I mean, right down to the whole, you're in the limo, you know, driving through the uh, LA trying to make it to the premiere. I usually have my eyes closed when I'm on it, so I don't really see a whole lot of scenery, but. There we go. So, yeah. but anyway, <laughs> lots of reasons, folks, that attractions become short-lived. Some of them are, are real estate related. Some of them are operational issues. And then just some are because it's a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, I noticed we didn't, uh, didn't include this one, uh, Stitches Supersonic Celebration. I will, uh, I'll give you this story. I believe Jason Sorrell was mm -hmm. the, uh, was the lead Imagineer on that. And after it had closed, like shortly after it had closed, uh, I saw him walking around one of the parks. I forget which park, but it struck up a what I thought was going to be an innocuous conversation with him by saying, "Dude, what happened there?" And he turned around and walked away, <laughs> like not even, not even gonna play. <laughs> it looked at me like, ah oh, man, and just walked away. <laughs> 
that one, you know, to this day, it was. It, I, but my question, my question was, to be yeah. fair, my question was like, I mean, he's a smart guy, right? My question was was along the lines of, was did they not give you enough time? Did they not give, like what? Did they not give you a budget? What what went wrong there? Because it's not. I knew it wasn't him, right? It was mm-hmm. something, and he just he's like, yeah, turn around. Too soon, man. Too soon. That's what I was going with. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, Jim tells us what the Disney Institute has been up to. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's glazing crawlers for next week's Best Donuts of Rhode Island Love Fest on Westminster Street in beautiful downtown Providence, Rhode Island. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. <laughs>